Woven like a tapestry, written like a symphony in harmony, spoken in a thousand tongues, painted like a thousand setting suns. Every little part, all a work of art. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Chan. I am really excited to bring you today's conversation with Beth and Dave Burham. They are the founders and directors of Fall Creek Abbey. Uh, I, just to be perfectly honest, did not know about Fall Creek Abbey. It's uh, a prior to it be uh, Dave and Beth being recommended to me by a former student, Kathy. And so this was kind of a diamond in the rough, one of those uh, instances where um, a former student had recommended that I look into, uh, look into uh, an author. And I did that and was just so surprised and delighted by this conversation. Um, We'll go into the history and some of the details about Fall Creek Abbey, but in short, it's an urban retreat center in Indianapolis. Both Beth and Dave are uh, spiritual directors, and then they are also authors. Uh, Most recently, they published a book called When Faith Becomes Sight, uh, opening your eyes to God's presence all around you. Uh, Beth and Dave both uh, authored that one. Uh, Beth also authored a book called Starting Something New, Spiritual Direction for Your God-Given Dream. That is a really fascinating book, and we dig into it a little bit in the conversation, but um, it, 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 there are just some really interesting ideas that uh, Beth works with there related to kind of vocational discernment, um, and uh, just kind of getting a sense for, you know, God's calling on your life and, and whatnot. So lots, lots of good stuff there. There are other publications as well, which I will include in the notes that you can go and check out. Uh, all of their books are available on Amazon. So uh, I'll keep this short, but in any way, in any case, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Um, this conversation is just uh, a reinforcement for me to keep asking you for authors. We have another uh, interview coming up with Todd Bolsinger, who uh, has written a really fascinating book on leadership, Christian leadership. That'll be coming up in the coming months and a lot of other great stuff. So if you know of authors, leaders, people who are doing a kind of remarkable gospel, remarkable gospel ministry uh, that you know about, I want to hear about them. And just to be really clear, these don't have to be famous people. They don't have to be authors or scholars or anything like that. This podcast is really about um, interviewing and learning from, it's really about learning from people who are who have have discerned interesting and creative ways uh, uh, to minister and preach the gospel in the world in the 21st century. So that's really the basic thesis of this whole podcast. And I know all of you know amazing people, so I want to hear about them. Please, please, please share those names with me. Um, That would be absolutely great. We're going to hear just a couple words from our sponsors, and then we'll jump right into the conversation. Again, thanks for joining me. I'm Grace Allworth, co-owner of Studio 2 Ceramics of Northeast Minneapolis. We make small batch pottery and teach low-pressure, casual classes with the goal of sharing the love of fun and creativity with our community. At Studio 2 Ceramics, we're committed to purchasing local supplies and using sustainable, earth-gentle practices whenever possible. Whether you're looking for a thoughtful gift, custom churchware, or a new favorite mug, Studio 2 Ceramics has something for you and something to share. Listeners of the Gospel Beautiful podcast receive 10% discount on all purchases. Visit our website, studio2ceramics.com, that's the number two, and use the coupon code GOSPEL. 
Hey there, Gospel Beautiful Podcast listeners. This is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog. Beth and Dave Burham, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Good to be with you, Michael. Yeah, I have been looking forward to this conversation for a long time since our mutual friend Kathy uh, had recommended um, recommended that I talk with the two of you. Uh, she's, I think, been she's been listening. I think since probably close to the beginning, and I had begun soliciting, uh, you know, interviewee guests just because our networks are always so small and Christianity is so big that sometimes you just need recommendations. Um, you all are. I, you all run Fall Creek Abbey. Would you tell us a little bit about this really unique urban retreat center? Urban retreat center. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? That's not what we expect. And yet when I was uh, introduced to a vision of uh, founding a retreat center, it was through one that was in Cincinnati called Sustainable Faith. And that's where I was trained as a spiritual director. And so I'd go down there every other month for a couple of days and stay in this beautiful, it's an old convent actually, in an urban neighborhood. And I simply fell in love with what I experienced there. Uh, And it was both the space, uh, it was what they were doing with and through the space, but it was also the context. Love the fact that it was in a kind of gritty neighborhood uh, and here it was, this like beautiful place of shalom, uh, surrounded by a, a lot of textures and colors and um, sounds and uh, just, I don't know, there was something really compelling about it. So eight years ago, we moved to this urban neighborhood similar to the one in Cincinnati, and we founded Fall Creek Abbey, uh, a retreat house for individuals and small groups and teams to come and come away and uh, to spend time in prayer and thoughtful reflection and engagement and conversation and do good work. And if I understand your story correctly, this really, this was your dream initially, Beth, I think. Is that right? Is that right? Yes. Uh Uh, Maybe say something a little bit about, uh, about how that kind of dream emerged. And then Dave, maybe say something a bit about kind of how your perspective on how all of that went down. Yeah. So I'll just be transparent and tell you that, you know, for the first half of our married life, we had a somewhat traditional way of of doing life. We had four kids. And so I was the primary caregiver to our kids, although he was certainly deeply involved. And he was the one that was kind of on the point of the spear. And, you know, he, he, he would, um, you know, we were in a campus ministry and kind of took on different positions there and then eventually pastoral ministry. And I would sort of come along behind him and get caught in the, you know, whatever it was he was doing, kind of holding on to his uh, coattails, so to speak. And then I would find my way. But this time our roles reversed and I began to catch this vision for this retreat center Uh, a vision to have it in an urban neighborhood. We at the time lived in Hamilton County, which is the county north of the main urban area of Indianapolis, uh, the central county. And so as I talked about it, 
He was very supportive for me, but just couldn't imagine himself really uh, being interested in partnering with me. And so just through some securitous uh, means, uh, eventually he caught a vision and I'll let him catch, catch you up. Yeah, I'd love to hear that, Dave, about that kind of initial, it sounds like you, maybe not skepticism, but you just weren't totally bought into the idea. What, what was that process like? Yeah. Um, well, with not going into the whole story, I think I was a bit disillusioned with the institutional side of uh, just the church of uh, Christianity. And so I think I had carved out kind of a, um, a, a, a private faith journey where I was doing good work as a career counselor uh, after 27 years of vocational ministry. And so it was kind of working for me. I wasn't looking for kind of another hill to, to charge or another initiative to, to hook up to. Um, and yet could tell that a lot was going on within Beth and experienced a lot of her own transformation, even in our relationship, I think, as she went through her training as a spiritual director and just our postures of listening. And uh, so I was intrigued with that. So I had heard the concept, uh, but then we were on this, as you mentioned, kind of a providential retreat where in Virginia, where I got to see um, kind of a concept like this in, in motion and another spiritual director offering hospitality to us and a group of other authors. And uh, it was like, I don't know, seeing is believing or, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. It went from kind of this abstractness to a, like, I could have pictured myself in the midst of this and there's a lot of goodness. And so I just felt like a real opening that uh, I don't think I was rigid and closed, but it was just like, I couldn't imagine. And this kind of fueled my imagination for what this could be like. Now, I think both of you, uh, you mentioned vocational ministry. Both of you spent time kind of in staff positions, I think uh, within churches. And I think even larger churches, is that, True. To, am I getting it right? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. What was, the, if I may ask, what was sort of the theological bent of those churches? What sort of tradition were they coming out of? Yeah, I don't know if this uh, would be a way to put it. I mean, um, an evangelical tradition that was increasingly becoming progressive, at least in verbiage. So, you know, there's this kind of transitional period that as as there's culture and theological evolution that takes place. Um, And so we were kind of in the midst of that, of some discovery of this concept of the kingdom of God. Imagine that. And the implications, the fuller implications of that and doing life and relationships and and, and community and authentic uh, just posture with one another of of, uh, brokenness and beauty of, of who we are as humans. And yet there was kind of this also turbulence of kind of the, I'll just say it, the old guard of, you know, kind of the, the evangelical uh, certainty. Uh, and um, so, yeah, there's a whole story in there. Sure, but. sure. No, perfectly understandable. And um, the book, Starting Something New, is a really fascinating project, if I understand it correctly. It's, it's in part detailing this journey. Mm-hmm. Of so there's a bit of autobiography at, at work there in the sense that it's it, it's a it starts I think I think the book starts really with the story of of starting Fall Creek Abbey, but then it really is about spiritual direction. It's about vocational discernment. It's about attentiveness. Um, mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that book. I think that is your most recent publication. Is that right? 
No, when no. fake becomes sight is the most recent, but the uh, starting something new, when fake becomes sight was co-authored between the two of us. Starting something new is a book that I wrote. Um, and it begins, we actually do tell the story of our departure from the mega church, uh, what you know, David was describing. And then me catching a vision for this urban retreat space and uh, being able to live out of some values that were so intrinsic within me. Uh, I think what's interesting about the book, there are a few features that people have responded really well to. For one, we tell, I tell our story as the arc of the book. So kind of the, the beginning that just, the, you know, kind of the conception of the dream and the gestation of the dream all the way through actually realizing it and beginning to live out of it. And then simultaneously, each of the chapters helps the reader kind of understand the gestation of a God-given dream. And then preceding each chapter, I illustrate that chapter through an interview of people who have given themselves to a God-given dream. And, and their stories, uh, you know, from all over the world, really. Um, many of them were from around here, but then I, I did a call out and got lots of great suggestions of people to interview. I can't remember how many I, folks I interviewed and then ended up using um, about 15 stories to, to help illustrate each of the chapters and the process. Yeah, I, I love, what, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say what, what comes to mind as you're sharing that is oftentimes I think uh, people may have uh, the sense or a nudge uh, of something that they're really curious about. Um, but it can seem small and they can almost kind of minimize the uh, significance of it. Or think if it's not a grand plan and grand dream or vision that is it really worth pursuing. And if you were to come here and see what we're doing, it's really modest. We've even joked before people have come and they kind of hear about us and then they come here and say, well, gosh, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But I think a lot of these stories are that way. They are, they are right size to the lives and lifestyles that most of us already have. They would stretch us, they would focus us, but they're not so grand that we, so a God-given dream doesn't have to be whatever God-sized might mean. It's more God. I think that's actually, I think that's really helpful. And it's something that I appreciated a lot about what I, what I saw of your work, that there is this kind of a calling in calling to attentiveness to life. And I'm thinking of a, uh, of a quote that you all have. I think this is coming from starting something new. Paula de Arce, God comes to us disguised as our life. Yeah. And that's a beautiful quotation with it. I come from the Lutheran tradition mm -hmm. and yeah. there's so much of kind of mm -hmm. vocational theology caught up in a statement like that, where I think you're right. When people think about God dreams, they're thinking of, something as big as God is, but you know, this is also the God that comes in the form of an infant. Right? Yeah. That's right. And, and so I really appreciated that quote in the way that you all seem to be calling people to sort of attend to the garden of their life and to see how mm -hmm. God is at work, even in these really small ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well it reminds me, I, uh, a few years back, um, I was observing, it was Wendell Berry's, maybe like his 80th birthday, I think. And a friend of mine had posted some videos and I watched one of them and it was an interview with Wendell. And, um, and I ended up having to stop it and write this quote down and I'm not gonna be able to say it verbatim, but basically he said, 
that we have educated two generations of students and told them that there are like big solutions to the biggest problems in the world. And I don't believe it. And then he goes on and he says that he believes the solutions are to pay attention to what's going on around you and live responsibly within your own local context for those things. And that just resonated so deeply with me. And I think it's not only what we hope we are doing in this beautiful place in which we live, in this beautiful city we love, we hope we are inspiring and assisting and empowering other people to do the very same thing through both spiritual direction and David's work as a career counselor. That is, I'm so glad you brought attention to Barry. I didn't know about that particular quote. Maybe after, maybe if you remember where you heard that, you can send it to me at some point. But yeah. I, but the sentiment I think is right. And there there is this sense that I get from the young students that I see coming out of college that part of the despair, I think that many, and, and just sort of cynicism that, that I see in many people is this sense that I j- I, we can't get stuff done. And I think that you can, you can get that feeling when your horizon is sort of the entire nation, you know, yes. which currently is deeply politicized. And even yes. our kind of our news sources are always with reference to what's happening nationally. But, but if you sort of go local the way that you're talking about, there are actually a lot of remarkable things that can happen. And that, but that sense of being disempowered, I think, feeds kind of the engine of cynicism in some really destructive ways. I think that's very well put, Michael. And I think about the fact that, you know, we live in this age where we have this global sense of what is happening in our world, and it is just overwhelming. And I think that overwhelming can oftentimes cause us to feel powerless. I have, I, what do I do? How can I affect all of the deep, profound problems in my world? And um, yeah, and I think there's something that, you know, it's kind of amazing that that is true. And yet there's something very tragic about that because it can cause us to even miss the things that we are being invited to do right where we live. We spoke earlier uh, uh, off air about um, Exodus 3 and I'd like that, that text has a really kind of special place in my own heart as a, well, as an Old Testament, you know, guy. <laughs> sure. um, but also vocationally, it's a text that I find students frequently kind of see themselves in the mirror. They, it's kind of a mirror for them. You know, the text sort of reads them just as much as they're reading the text. And uh, I would love to read that text together maybe in a sort of section by section or line by line kind of way, whatever sort of feels most natural. And then just for the three of us to have a conversation about what we see. Um, even Dave, you, you know, you can share if you want, but I think even this morning you were contemplating this text. Uh, uh, so let's, yeah, let's go ahead and read it and see what happens. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm reading from a, kind of an imaginative treatment in the book, uh, When Faith Becomes Sight and, maybe just even context, we have purposely done that throughout the book in an attempt to invite readers to slow down as they read familiar passages. So I I must confess that many books that I see, if it's loaded with scripture, you skip the scripture. (laughs) scripture. I know that one. Yeah. And, um, 
And so in an intent, a very Ignatian way, we want to invite readers to activate the God-given faculty of imagination as they uh, maybe read scripture as if for the first time uh, or um, in the current context. And so we've done that throughout the book and this, this has a bit of that flavor. And there's three sections it looks like. So maybe I'll read a paragraph and then we can have conversation. This is Exodus 3, 1 through 6. One crisp morning, I was shepherding my father-in-law's flock of sheep as I did on most mornings. For some reason, I guided them far away from the usual paths and pastures to the other side of the desert and came to a place known as Horeb. I, well, first of all, I love the first person changing character. It's third person in the, you know, sort of the mm-hmm. biblical text. And I love the for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Todd, I want to, I want to know, I want to know about when you two read that, what do you hear that text mm-hmm. that you just read? I can tell you that I hear how it is most of the time in life as we go about living our lives. And for some reason, we decide to go this way <laughs> instead of that way. And in that very unconscious and, and kind of uh, unaware sort of way, it becomes providential to us. Mm. We realize that that way made all the difference. Uh, uh, and yet we had no like great intention or aware, awareness of that when we made that choice. He's just not doing his job. Yeah, I just hear the ordinariness of, um, you know, most of life is, is, it's just normal. It's ordinary. It's, it's good, but it's unremarkable. And, uh, and maybe even to say too, that I think what's so beautiful about that moment for Moses is that though he, he at one level maybe wasn't conscious as to why he went a different way. Maybe on another level he was, that there was something in him that Mm -hmm. felt attracted or drawn to a different path. I'm going to take a different way to work this morning. You know, Mm -hmm. instead of the way I usually go, for some reason it sounds good to me to go this way. And so because he paid attention to that and then acted on it, something really amazing happened. Well, and when we do mix it up, it's almost like we notice things with new eyes. Mm-hmm. I love Maybe that. A yeah. bit on autopilot as we're just going through our normal routines, but when we do kind of follow those just quiet promptings to mix it up a bit, all of a sudden we start to see things, meet people, just things are different and we're awakened in a new way. Well, in my hope with a translation like the one that you all just offered or paraphrase, however you want to characterize it, is um, that people will do have exactly that experience, right? That they will hear the scripture in a fresh way. And I think other translations like the message, you know, Eugene Peterson's translation mm-hmm. does that for people, in part because Peterson was so good with language Yes. Um, that, that it's hard to read anything that he does and not just be struck by how he writes it. <laughs> yes. 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 So yes. True. yes. Yeah. Well, how about um, I move on to the second paragraph? Please, please do, else, Dave. Right? Yeah, please. As I approached a small bluff there, a special messenger of the eternal one appeared to me in a fiery blaze from what looked like a bush. 
I did a double take, blinked the sand out of my eyes and peered at the bush. But to my amazement, the bush wasn't consumed by the inferno. I thought to myself, or to be honest, whispered out loud to no one in particular, why is this bush not burning up? Instinctively, I moved closer to get a better look. Hmm. In that chapter where you all talk about this, the word curiosity comes up. Mm -hmm. And that is the word that always kind of comes to mind when I read this section of the story that somehow I think often there is this deep connection between vocation and curiosity. Mm. And, and I don't think part of what I'm trying to do for myself is pay more attention to why, sir, why I'm curious about particular things. Mm-hmm. Why? Because other people may not often are not curious about the same things. Right. But I, I think that calling and curiosity, vocation and curiosity are somehow intertwined. Mm. Thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, the first thought that comes to mind is so, so much of our culture and training is to create or, or to treat vocation in a very pragmatic way, like it's a means to an end. Hmm. Curiosities, on, on the first glance, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not very utilitarian. Uh, I mean, it can become that in an entrepreneurial sense, I suppose, but... It feels decadent uh, in some ways. Yeah, it like doesn't a have a lot of, yeah, like um, A plus B equals C kind of value. So, yeah, it, it really feels like maybe, depending on your God image, I mean, if you've got a, a utilitarian God, it would be like, yeah, just uh, curiosity, kill the cat, you know, keep your nose to the grindstone. But if if God is a... Can we describe God as a curious God? Like, was he watching? I wonder if Moses, what's going to happen here? And was there almost like a breath there of like, what's going to happen next? So I don't know. Yeah, I I love what you said about um, being noticing what you find yourself being curious about and realizing that oftentimes that's very unique to you. And I think that's quite true. And that's one of the ways we describe God uh, at work within us, drawing our attention to things that not everybody else would be drawn to. We have another chapter in this section of the book called Recurring Themes. And um, and we talk about how often our life is sort of sewn together by these themes. And, And, but everybody's themes are so different, you know, and they might be these Like I do have a lot of recurring themes with nature. I have a particular bird that just speaks to me, a blue heron. I just, (laughs) I have this thing about blue herons and I see them all the time. I know. And and I see them in the most uncanny places or at such providential times. So I have this curiosity about them and that most people probably don't. But I find God speaking to me, leading me, uh, even just... Uh, demonstrating God's care for me or attentiveness to me uh, through something like that. So I love that. Mm-hmm. Dave, is there My something thoughts. like that? For, go ahead. You, you go ahead. Well, no, I was going to, I was going to share that little moment this morning. And um, 
Moses apparently was interruptible. You know, his, his agenda wasn't that. so tight and rigid, like, well, I have to be at wherever <laughs> by 1.30, you know. Uh, how freeing would that be to not, not have Kronos time kind of connected to us? And really, to, I think there was a freedom probably to be interrupted, but I'm sure that, that maybe I'm reading that into it. But he was interruptible would be a way to put that as I see this. And so I was describing to you, Michael, how just three minutes before we popped on here, I noticed I've got a pollinator garden and I saw this one, one leaf and it was just kind of spinning around and the sun was coming on it. I thought, that's kind of odd. I don't see a whole lot of wind. What's, what's happening there? And, and so, you know, I wonder, is it a caterpillar that's doing its thing? And, and so, I could have walked by it, but I thought, no, nope, I'm going to walk out there. And actually, I thought of this story as, as we were describing this, walked out there. It was simply a leaf that had kind of detached and was less securely attached. It was kind of doing its, its thing because of its attachment. Wasn't a burning bush. <laughs> but it was a shimmering attraction. But it was a shimmering attraction. And yeah. in retrospect, it's like, oh, was that even a spiritual practice for me, even though there was quote unquote, nothing there that I allowed myself to move toward it for an instant. I love that image of being interruptible. I wonder if, I'd love to hear just both of your reflections on that word or even the, maybe even put it in terms of practices. Like what would it look like to have a kind of life practice of being interruptible? Mm. What is that? I feel like there's something there. Yeah. One thing that comes to my mind is for me to be interruptible, I simultaneously have to be very present to my life. If, I, if, if I'm detached from the present moment and my mind is on what's coming next, more than likely I, I will, it, whatever is before me will be, have less opportunity to interrupt me. So those spiritual practice of practicing the presence of God, being present, being mindful would be part of it. And then just being willing to even trust that when something draws my attention in, that it's worthy to give that which is attracting me some attention. And so being willing then to pause and and to pursue that and to see, is there something more? But you kind of have the sense in this narrative that Moses notices and he kind of says, gee, what's going on here? I want to move closer and get a better look. I think for me, Michael, um, the word scarcity comes to mind uh, that I've Mm. got a bit of a lifelong (laughs) project of moving from scarcity to um, trust and that God is enough, God will provide enough. And so I think when I'm in a scarcity mindset, I can't be interrupted. Mm -hmm. I've got to preserve my energy, my time, my money, whatever this is going to cost me. Um, And so I wonder to be interruptible, at least for me, it's to, to release that grasp of like, I've got to hold on to what's mine. That's so insightful, Dave. And I also want to sort of notice that I, I really appreciated that you, 
You didn't say scarcity and abundance. You said scarcity and trust. And I think often mm-hmm. scarcity and abundance are the two poles that mm-hmm. we hear people mm-hmm. talk about. I those always feel that binary feels about seventy five percent off to me. Like there, it's mm-hmm. a couple degrees off. But when you say scarcity and trust, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And what I have in my mind are the wilderness stories, right? Which will come in just uh, you know eleven, twelve chapters after this one, where it's not that God provides so much for them that they're engorged, you know, God provides for them every day, you know, with the manna in the wilderness, God provides enough for them. Um, And it's about trust and not abundance in the sense, in the way that Americans often think of abundance, you know? Yes. Yes. And I just want to acknowledge that I I appreciate that. Yes. And you use the word enough. Mm. And I don't know about a week ago as I was processing some of this for myself, um, the word enough really, came forward to me and God saying to me, I am enough. And so I wonder if that's the, the real polarity there is scarcity and enough. There is something though, just about this kind of sort of scarcity of time, the part of what keeps, at least for me, part of what keeps me from being attentive to the moment or something that might um, be of deep significance is the sense that there isn't enough time for me to pay attention to whatever it is. I was thinking about when, you know, Jesus is often interrupted in the gospels, I think. Mm-hmm. He had a very hustling, bustling, you know, all over the place. And I was thinking about when the little children are brought to Jesus and the disciples sort of say, no, you know, <laughs> you know, try, try to keep, keep them away. Them. Yeah. Don't, don't interrupt them. I, I don't think they use the precise words, but you get that yeah. sense, right? The, Hey, look, yeah. he doesn't have time for this kind of thing. Um, and, and it just makes me think about, how our priorities shape what we see, you know, mm-hmm. and Jesus had to help them kind of reshape their priorities. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, look, the, the kingdom of God is among children like this. Or- mm-hmm. Margaret like- Gunther, who um, has written a book for spiritual directors and we use it in our training of spiritual directors. I love her statement for the next hour. We have all the time in the world. And this sense that um, somehow God's eternal now, Kairos, can Mm -hmm. rest in the midst of this moment. And it is abundant. I mean, at that sense, I think there is a spiritual abundance that that comes in, and we can rest in that. You two just mentioned, well, the spiritual director uh, term just came up. This is, I, I, I am hearing more and more about spiritual directors. We, uh, you know, encourage our students at Luther to to consult with spiritual directors. Many of my students are themselves spiritual directors. For those who may not be familiar with that terminology, can you two provide just kind of a basic definition? And then you all do training for spiritual directors. So maybe plug that a little bit, talk a little bit about what that looks like. Sure. Yeah, spiritual direction has been around a very long time, but it's not as familiar, especially within Protestant circles. Uh, it is a, it typically is a one-on-one spiritual practice where a director creates a very safe and um, confidential space for an individual to come and to share whatever is going on in their life. And the director helps them to pay attention to, to recognize the presence of God, to reflect on God's presence, and then to discern how to respond to God's invitations. 
Anything to add to that, Dave? I think it's a ministry that is desperately needed for our times and has been needed in the history of the church probably from day one. But I think in the last quarter century, it has become more acutely uh, uh, problematic that those particularly who are leading and responsible and look to for spiritual guidance um, often feel very alone and isolated. And sometimes their public persona and their private spiritual journey, there can increasingly be kind of a, a separation of those two. And so um, it's one of those ministries that it, it, it's time is now it's desperately needed. That's interesting. Um, I think the, the recognizable term for this vocation is spiritual director. Do you two wear that title comfortably? Meaning, do you like the term spiritual director or do you wish it was called something different? I've always felt, um, I, I think the practice is, is, is fabulous and, uh, and, and really important. And, and that's, I agree with you, Dave, that it's time is, is now. Um, I wonder about the title. Mm-hmm. We and we talk about that a lot, Michael. And you know, some people will call it spiritual companioning, which maybe has a little better tone. Uh, spiritual director has just been more of the classic uh, term used, but it, it often does uh, require some explanation because you get the idea that you go to see a spiritual director and they direct you. They say, "Here's here's what you need to do and where you need to go." And it's that's all about not yeah. being spiritual, yeah. yeah. Rather than and, and I can t- I can tell that's exactly what you two do, right? When right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we are just you know you come to us, we tell you you know we, in five easy steps, this is what's going on, and what you need to do. Yeah, so we we do have to often define it and remind people that the spiritual direction we are looking for is within you. So it is what we're paying attention to isn't like what I think you need to do, but what is, what is the spirit in you directing you to do? And that's what we're paying attention to together. It's funny, Michael, though you asking the question, it's a really good question. There's something about the, um, the awkwardness of this, of the title though, that preserves a little bit of its, well, it's just not like us doing life together and like being friends along a spiritual journey it, it, it preserves mm, a bit of a definition that I don't think I want. So I wear it comfortably yeah. um, in, in some ways, the same way that maybe a Lutheran pastor would wear a collar. It's kind of like, I know this analogy. is a little awkward, but it does something. It says something. It makes a statement. It does create a, a kind of, air of professionalism um, in, in the way that a, a term like counselor would, you know, it's, it's one thing to kind of talk to your best friend about a problem. It's another thing to say, I'm, I'm going to make an appointment with a counselor, you know, their job, quote unquote, their profession is to help me with such and such a thing. And I, so I guess I, I don't want to say this negatively, but it, it creates a kind of professional distance, I guess, or some kind of, I don't know. I'm not sure I'm quite getting at it, but. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. I'm glad yeah. you said that because yeah. I actually, I've kind of settled into the term, I think, for the same reason that David has expressed. 
I will say that it can be, it's used in a somewhat sloppy way in our world. Mm. Like, you know, people who go to, um, well, I should, I, I won't name it. There's retreats that are available and there'll be somebody who they will give the title spiritual director, but that doesn't mean that they have any training in spiritual direction. It's just a, a title. So, you know, definitely there are people who just kind of borrow it because they think it kind of sounds good and it's sort of maybe a little nebulous or, or um, benign even. But uh, in, in the way that we use it, it does, it does co convey that the person who is a spiritual director has received a, a, an adequate amount of training and guidance in order to offer this type of ministry of listening. One thing I do appreciate about the term is that it, it's a term that I feel like could be welcoming to somebody who maybe didn't have a great experience with Christianity. It's not so laden with Christianity that it's, uh, it couldn't be open to somebody who simply has a deep connection or a deep sense of spirituality, but doesn't necessarily belong in a Methodist church or, you know, or, right. or, or feel comfortable within, you know, the four walls of a, uh, of a Catholic cathedral or something like that. Mm -hmm. But they have this deep sense of spirituality. They're on a journey and they want a companion as part of that. I think that's well said. Is that yeah. Fair? Yeah. And there are spiritual directors uh, who are trained for all major world religions, as well as people who would just, you know, identify as being spiritual, but not necessarily religious. Michael, I want to read the last paragraph. Wait, oh, I here. forgot I, we have I, one I, more I section. To, I'm yeah, sorry. I, I, I'm usually not closure oriented, but I feel You're like doing I'm here. Yeah. You're doing great. Come into me. So we just left Moses instinctively moving closer to get a better look. As the Eternal One saw me approach the bush to observe it, he addressed me by name and said, Moses, Moses. You can imagine how shocked I was, but cautiously whispered with eyes closed now, here I am. Then I heard the words, whether with my ears or in my spirit, take off your sandals and stand barefoot on the ground. For now you know I am here and where I am is holy ground. What are you thinking? Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm, in part, I'm thinking of the holy audacity of Moses to imagine that he actually heard God in a voice, whether audible or in his spirit, that the living God was speaking to him as we're speaking to one another right now. And it takes a bit of, of audacity to believe that. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate the way that you reframe, or I think actually name more precisely what holiness is. Um, and I can't remember the precise phrase, but you identify holy. This place is holy because I, I am, am here. 
right? Yeah. Because as, as the book of Isaiah would say, the Holy One of Israel mm-hmm. is here. And so I think holiness is one of those terms, right? I think especially for those of us and, and myself mm-hmm. included who have a kind of deep connections to evangelicalism, um, holiness is an ethical category often, but here the way you all have read it, this is about a person who is holy, and, and that person's proximity to the place is what makes mm-hmm. it holy ground. Mm-hmm. It was interesting when David was reading it, what <clears throat> the word that lifted up for me was the word, word barefoot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know what it is like to stand barefoot on the ground or the floor with nothing between me and what is holding me up. And there is something about that experience that when I pay attention to it, uh, is, I don't know, it's maybe it feels sacred. Um, It has a sense of I'm being held by God. And so, that's what stood out to me. It stood out to me too. And I noticed when I got there, I read it differently than I maybe often would. Oftentimes it would be, take off your sandals, <laughs> you know, um, those dirty sandals, you know. But it was more like an invitation to intimacy. Yeah, nothing take between us. Take off your shoes, nothing between us. This is ground that I want you, nothing separating us. Mm-hmm. And it's an act of kind of radical uh, relationship with God of being there a bit unclothed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then your rendering of that story kind of ends there, right? Or is there another? Yes. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to make sure uh I understood. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful rereading. I I really hope people will, will dig into that. uh, We'll dig into that book because I think there is a lot there. I am having more and more conversations with people who are kind of within my age bracket, uh, sort of early millennials, right? They're in their late late thirties, early forties, who are just in this process of discernment. And I think the COVID-19 stuff has accelerated a bit of that because you just have more, many people have more space or their life has been altered. You know, their schedules have been altered. So they're seeing their life turned, you know, slightly different direction. And they're trying to discern what is the spirit calling me to. I wonder if there are some practices that you'd invite us to try that might help us to just begin kind of entering on this path of discernment of trying to understand how God is actually at work in our lives, especially in this time when we're somewhat limited and separated from our church communities and other kind of communities of faith. I'm going to speak just of what's not generically and pulling things off the shelf, but more kind of what's been fresh to, to us, I think, in the last uh, few months. One is um, I've been practicing gratitude in a new way on a daily basis that um, There's a lot of research now that shows that um, 
Practicing gratitude actually changes the structure and chemistry of our brain. And uh, we're in a world right now where the structure of our brain can be destroyed on a daily basis, depending on what kind of news or information we're taking on. So, um, but the way I've been approaching gratitude is, and, and Jim Wilder, if you're familiar with him, his little book, uh, is it Joy Starts? Joyful Journey. Joyful Journey. <clears throat> it's a practice that he recommends and he describes it as interactive gratitude. So we're familiar with giving thanks and, um, and yeah, that's, that's really great. But in our human relationships, if we give thanks to someone, there is a response back of, oh, I appreciate so much that that was meaningful to you, or you noticed that, or I thought of you when I saw these flowers. And so, um, so it's an interactive exercise. And so I've been practicing this interactive gratitude uh, and I'm a journaler. I, I think it really is assisted by journaling. Uh, I suppose you could, you could, but there's a movement of writing a short paragraph of gratitude, pausing, and then very much like we did here, accessing the gift of imagination. And if God were to respond and reply, to your statement of gratitude, what do you imagine he would say? And so I actually put it in quotations, you know, and I journal it back as if, David, I am so glad that you noticed that yesterday. It brings my heart joy that, and, you know, I will play out the, um, in the Ignatian terms, the colloquy of, of, of God actually kind of mirroring back his statement to my gratitude. It's been really sweet, Michael, to have these moments of gratitude uh, in the midst of this confusing time. I believe that. That's helpful. Yeah. What about you, Bethany? Yeah, I think there's kind of two things that are coming to my mind right now. And so I'm going to follow up a little bit on uh, something that David and I have experienced over the last month and a half that's been such a beautiful gift. But we think, you know, really with some intention, most people could uh, be able to, to practice it. So each morning we, after we've had some time to drink our coffee and read, pray, sit, listen, journal, we take a pretty long walk, about an hour and 15 or 20 minutes. But we began to do something at the end of June that is kind of a new practice, but I think it has just been so wonderful. Uh, so we, we walk through this on this greenway to a certain destination and then we turn around and we come back. So one direction, one of us listens to the other and all we do is ask questions or, or observe or, or notice things. And then we get to our destination, we turn around and then we switch roles. And so in a sense, we're offering spiritual direction to the other. And it's been such a gift. And I, and I have talked to other people and even practiced it with some of the people I meet with for spiritual direction, but just this idea of walking and talking. But it's walking and talking and with one person listening and one person doing the talking which often doesn't happen in our world, right? When we have conversations with each other, we interrupt, we say, oh yeah, that reminds me of, and I can really get what you're saying. And so <clears throat> it's one person, it, you know, it's more um, give and take. Whereas this is 
giving a person your undivided attention for that 30 minutes of walking. And so that's the, the spiritual practice. Now, in terms of the content of that spiritual practice, that's the other piece that came to my mind. I think if people could begin to do what we talked about earlier, notice what you're becoming curious about. What lifted off the page of your life in the last 24 hours? So what did I experience that really um, was maybe a source of gratitude or maybe it was a source of provocation? Mm -hmm. uh, but it was something that feels like my attention is being drawn to it and I want to linger here and know what this is about or what's going on. And so that's the content of what we share with one another as we do this walking and talking together. And, um, you know, I'm thinking a lot of people can find a friend that would be interested in this kind of a reciprocating uh, relationship. And during this pandemic, I, I just feel like it is so important for us uh, to make deeper connections, not be so isolated. And even though we're like maybe connecting superficially, that's just not enough. We need deep connection where we listen to another soul and then they give us the same honor by listening to ours. So I think that's what comes to my mind. Such helpful advice. You know, we're really coming to the end of our time together. I just wonder if there. If there's anything that you feel like uh, we sh should have covered or anything, anything that you'd like to, to communicate to, uh, to the audience, Ke keeping in mind that I, I, I'd, I'd say my audience is, there are a lot of clergy, <laughs> you know, uh, just given the, the circles that I run in and people who have, like yourselves, been in professional ministry. I wonder if you have any uh, final words for them. Uh, sharing with Beth, uh, we meet with a lot of folks who give their heart, mind, soul, strength to serving others, whether in social justice or nonprofits or ministry uh, roles. In the church. In the church. Um, and yet I see there is this, um, hmm, I don't know if it's a forgetting or if it's been emphasized enough that each one of us will forever and always be the object of God's mission, that we're not simply tools of the mission of God or instruments or gifted persons uh, contributing, but we're in desperate need to continue to be in a posture where we allow God's mission of love to pursue us mm -hmm. and, um, so yeah, that would be the, the reminder, the encouragement to, as each one cons continues to discern who they're called to serve and the weak and the vulnerable that they're called to care for, to never forget that um, you're the object of God's mission of love. Those are powerful words. I wonder if you all would... Uh... Do me the honor of hearing your own work. I think this might be your work, Beth, read out loud to you, maybe as a, maybe as a missional gift. Um, at the end of starting something new, it's like this, Beth, is your, this is your book, right? Mm -hmm. There is a beautiful po prayer, poem, prayer. Oh, okay. I'd like to sort of take us out on a, a reading of that. So um, here we go. 
We have witnessed inspiration of spirit in the voice of a woman, in the colors of an artist, in the prophetic vision of a leader, in the most simple acts of daily kindness. We have experienced creativity in our own soul, in seeing things anew, in unplanned utterances of wonder and passion, in the most ordinary actions of tending and caring, in the life and the world this night, in every nation and among every people. Let there be fresh stirrings of your spirit in our own soul and in the soul of the world tonight. Let there be fresh stirrings of your mighty creating spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm. Amen. Beth and Dave, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a blessing to be in conversation with you. Mm -hmm. We've enjoyed it, Michael. Michael. Mm -hmm. We really appreciate you. Thank you.